We are going to be in Acts chapter 6, chapter 7, and some of chapter 8. And if you are nervous right now, you can blame Robbie Helene for this. Because Robbie was the great outliner of this series through Acts. And I looked at it, yeah, like we're already leaving. I get it. I'm like, I, I've had it. I'm done. Um, no, I, I am in a situation where I looked at that and I said, Ravi, this is like parts of three chapters. He goes, oh, no, no, it's super easy. All you do is this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, that's all you do is this, this, and this. So um, the bets were, though, in my household, everyone thought it would be shorter than usual because of that. So I, I think there's a, there's a good chance of that. Um, I want to frame it, though, because we're going to read chunks and, and, um, and then just like basically pulling out one point from these different chunks. But um, what I want to kind of frame it as is understand that this is, this, is the first, um, this is the story of the first martyr in the church. So it's a heavy story that we have, you know, the church grew, the Holy Spirit came down and dwelled the believers. They, they changed, they transformed radically. And then the church starts and they are proclaiming the gospel boldly. And at first, like many thousands are, are um, converted and come to faith in Christ. And the church grows. And then they start to get persecuted. They be, get brought in. Remember, uh, you know, Peter and John get bought, brought in before the council. And they have to give a defense for their faith. And they are threatened. But, but nothing else happens to them. And they go on preaching the gospel. But now it is escalated. We have Stephen, who if you may remember from sermon on... Um, He's one of the servants, one of the deacons that were first appointed. And what we're going to see here is him giving one of the great sermons in Acts. And a defense for his faith. And really the big point of this, like if you, if you derail at any point during this sermon, the big point is God's faithfulness. What Stephen wants to make sure that he makes clear to everyone who would listen is that God, despite our faithlessness, despite scary circumstances around us, in spite of everything that we might think are important factors in the spread of the gospel and the building of his kingdom, God is faithful to bring about what he has promised. And there is nothing we can do to derail that. And in that story of faithfulness, we are going to look at a couple of warnings for ourselves of, of what it looks like, of, of being, finding ourselves actually opposed to God in his work, and then a picture in Stephen of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So starting in chapter 6, some of the key verses will be up on the screen at some points, but I just want to encourage you to, to follow along. So in chapter 6 of Acts, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, 
We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they bring these false witnesses together. They make these, bring these charges. And, and notice um, the accusations that are made. We're going we're gonna to hold on to these. But the, these, these were the, the main accusations. They set up false witnesses who said, The man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So their accusations are he is anti-temple. Like he's speaking against the temple, talking about Jesus. He's proclaiming this Jesus. He says he's going to tear down the temple. So he is anti-temple and he is anti-law, the law of God. And what Stephen's defense is going to be, he's going to address those things. But the bigger picture is, is he's going to tell a beautiful story of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. So hold on to those accusations, and he'll deal with those later. He starts out, it says, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So what we're going to see is Stephen is going to draw on three key figures in the story of God. He's going to talk about Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And in Abraham, he's wanting to remind the, the people of how God made a promise to Abraham. How he made a covenant with Abraham. And that and, and not only that he made these promises, but he's also drawing the point of saying he made these promises when there was nothing to work with here. Right? So look at, look at what he promises. He promises Abraham land, though Abraham had none. He promises that his descendants would be as the stars in the sky, though he was 85 at the time and had no children. He tells him that even though his offspring will be enslaved, that he will deliver them. 
And he says, your descendants will worship me in this place. And he gives them circumcision as the sign of this covenant. So Stephen is reminding them in this little piece, he's reminding them that, that, and us, that God's promises are trustworthy even when we don't have any idea how he's going to do it. Even when we look around and we say, well, he doesn't have any material to work with. There's nothing to start from. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. This is such a basic and simple idea, and yet it's one that I have found myself struggling to believe my entire life. Every ounce of worry or doubt in my mind comes back to, do I believe God's promises? Do I believe that he is able to fulfill those promises? Do I believe that he is faithful to fulfill his promises? And Stephen is building the argument that yes. And he's building the argument that his, God's faithfulness is not dependent on us. What we have or what we don't have. God's ability to reach people through you is not dependent on your intellectual ability, on your experiences, on your looks, on your strength, on how successful you are, on whatever talents or gifts you think you do or do not have. He has placed every single one of you where he has placed you to work in you a miraculous work to transform your life, to declare to a lost and hurting world of his goodness. He does not need us to help him out. He does not need us to build or do things for him. He invites us to join him in what he is doing. So you remember, Abraham heard that promise, and when he's thinking, like, well, this is awkward because my wife and I are both super old, and are unable to have children. And so he goes outside of his marriage to conceive a child. Because obviously God needs my help. God, I totally hear you. You're going to promise this stuff. But hey, here's the problem. I don't have any kids. And it's not happening here. So we got we to help you out a little bit. Be careful of that. Be careful when God promises something. And then we say like, okay, but yeah, I think this is the way it has to happen. And so I'm going to make this happen. Eve even if I do it in a way that's dishonoring to God. He gives circumcision as a sign to remember, remember what I said, remember my covenant, remember my promise. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition that when there's a baptism, um, part of the liturgy is, say, is saying, remember your baptism. This idea of remembering your baptism. Our sign now is baptism. Circumcision has been replaced by, by baptism. And so we have this, this sign that if you have been baptized, then the call is like, remember that. That is the covenant. It is a reminder, just like with Abraham, it is a reminder that God's work in you is not dependent on you. Your salvation is not dependent on you. God has done it. God has fulfilled it. God will work all things together for good and he will bring you safely home. Our job is to just be faithful and walk with him. And when we remember our baptism, we remember that. We remember that it is dependent on him. He is the one that does the work. And here, 
he fulfills that. As Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob, who becomes the father of the 12 patriarchs. And all is well, and they lived happily ever after. Not exactly. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, the 12, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So Joseph is sold into slavery. And as Stephen tells the story, he's like, here's the promise he made to Abraham. And look, even when the patriarchs failed and were jealous of Joseph, they sell him off into Egypt. And it looks like all is lost. God was with him. God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. And what he's pointing out here is, hey, God, God's faithfulness and his promises, not, they're not dependent on you. They're also not dependent on afflictions that are, that are crushing in on us or circumstances around us. Like you could have thought that if, if we looked back and, and if they knew, okay, Joseph is a key player in God's plan, you would think like, well, at all costs, we've got to make sure that Joseph isn't sold off into slavery. At all costs, we've got to make sure that we protect his life. And God says, I protect his life. God says, I keep my promises. And even as Joseph was afflicted, God was with him and delivered him. And then through Joseph, he rescues his people from famine. I mean, imagine if we were in charge back when and Joseph's brothers were going to sell him off into slavery, we would say, no, 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 like we got to make sure that doesn't happen. Like we didn't know how all was going to play out, but we just knew how important Joseph was. We would like fight to keep him there. And yet God was using all of that to eventually rescue his people from starving to death and being wiped off the face of the earth. And I think the very simple point from this that we all need to understand is there are many circumstances in our lives that we think are foiling the plans of God. But those are the very things that God is using to deliver you. The suffering that you may be going through right now, the frustration the things that you feel like, I just wish this would go away. God, if you were good, you would take this away. God, if you were, if you were good, you would, you would deal with this. Those may be the very things he is using to save your life for all eternity. What, what circumstances in your life right now do you feel like God can't work through? That he can't grow your faith? We all have this testimony. 
Everyone who's followed Jesus for any amount of time, I look around the room and you have the testimony of knowing that it was in your deepest sorrow and grief that Jesus pulled you the closest. You felt his presence the most. And Stephen's reminding them, this is how God works. And then he goes on to Moses in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. By the way, if you want a key verse in the Old Testament that kind of sums up the entire Old Testament in one verse... It's that one. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." gives this story of Moses. And again, another example of how God's sovereignty is working all things together for good. That even though the people of Israel, the children were being exposed, means they were being killed, Moses is rescued. He is saved. He is delivered. The Pharaoh's daughter um, brings him in. He is raised. He is given a place of favor and of power. And again, if we could go back in time, And if we were just like everybody else, and if we knew God is going to use Moses to deliver us, we would watch as he is rescued and placed in this place of honor, and we would say, right, from there, that's where he's going to deliver us from. This makes total sense. 
Moses is going to raise to power, just like Joseph did, like God did that for Joseph. Now it's going to happen with Moses, only that's not what happens. Moses loses his place. Moses is so gung-ho to deliver his people, to go and connect with his people, that he ends up murdering a man. And then he runs away in fear. And if we were there, we would say, all is lost. Look what a mess Moses and God's people have made of all of this. They've given up all their power. They've given up all their place. They've given up all their position. There is no hope. And yet, God's faithfulness is not derailed by this. And even at 80 years old, God comes to him and says, I'm going to deliver my people through you. Get up. We're going to Egypt. Now, I'm not 80. Some of you, you should have responded better to that. Like, obviously not. I'm not 80. But that seems like a big journey and a lot to ask. And what's so incredible is you imagine, like, you, we would look at that and we would say, well, God, why not when Moses was like 30? He's 30 and strong and a young leader. He'd probably make like, you know, Egypt, Egypt news is like top 30 under 30 or whatever. Like he'd be powerful and influential and people would look at him and he, he would be like kind of cross-cultural and he'd be able to like mend these fences. He'd be able to do all these things at 30 years old. Like that's when Moses delivers God's people and God says, no, he's going to murder a man and he's going to run away as a coward and he's going to hide for 40 years. And at 80, he has no position and no standing and no power. I'm going to bring him back. Listen, one of the things that just struck me at this point was wanting you to hear that God's plan in your life is not derailed by the time you have wasted. I have walked with people who have said so many times, I hear this story so many times, so many times in fact, if you have recently told me a similar story, no, this isn't about you, this is about you and like 150 other people sitting here right now of saying, I feel like I wasted time. Parents, who have come to Christ later in life and now have grown children who are not walking with the Lord, saying, I wasted that time. People who come to Christ way later in life and say, I I wasted my life. Even people who are starting out and they, they say, like, I wasted so much time. I wasted my gifts. I wasted my abilities. I wasted my resources. I wasted all that. You have wasted nothing that God cannot restore. Nothing, right? That's not to say that we don't have sin and that we haven't wasted things. We have. And the answer to that is not to say, hey, don't worry about it. No big deal. Say, yes, I repent. I turn from that. I have wasted that. But God, you redeem and you restore and you renew. 
We turn to Christ and we receive forgiveness and we receive redemption and we receive renewal and we receive a second chance and a third chance and a hundredth chance because our God is patient with us. So much regret. I just want you to know if you feel conviction, conviction is a gift from the Holy Spirit to turn us back to the faithful God who will forgive us and redeem us and renew us. It's a beautiful gift. Shame and guilt and regret are tools of the enemy to keep you from turning back to God. You have to know the difference. And we have to get free with saying, when I have conviction, I will repent and be soft-hearted and confess my sin. And when the enemy says, right, and that's why God can't use you in the right way or you could have had so much better of a life if you just would have done this and he starts pounding on you you say that's that's not from the spirit so stop stop the piling of shame on yourself and on others and regret and feeling like God can't redeem what he can redeem and restore what he can restore he did it with Moses turn find him. Give him what you have, and he is faithful. So he tells these stories. You might say, like, well, okay, well, those are great, but how is that a defense against what they accused him of? He does give a defense against what they accused him of. Remember his accusations. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That's the accusation. And what they reveal in their accusation is that they look like they care about the things of God, but they reveal that they do not. They care about the things of men and they care about their own position and power. So remember all those stories of faithfulness, how God uses like the weakness of man to shame the strong. And so all these situations where you say like, yes, that's where we have power. That's where we have position. And God says, no, I'm the one with power. I'm the one with position. I don't need anything else. And what we see in these accusations are religious people who demonstrate that they care more about their own position and power than about God. You see it even in that accusation. Look what their accusations are. He speaks against the holy place and the law. Even when they do mention God, it's as a footnote after Moses. And so here here are those accusations. You're anti-law, which also is um, the same thing as anti-Moses. So you speak against Moses, you speak against the law. And then you're anti-temple. So the first one, you're anti-Moses, you're anti-law. You see him deliver a defense here. It's almost like he could, he could start at verse 35. If you preface that with, with Stephen like saying, uh, I'm anti-Moses? Verse 35, this Moses, whom they, our, our fathers, rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And if you hear what's going on there, he's saying, you're accusing me of being anti-Moses. Like, our fathers were anti-Moses. This one that, that was rejected, the one who led our fathers out of Egypt and performed signs of wonders that led them for 40 years in the desert, who prophesied and said that you was going to raise up one from among you who received the law and gave it to you. But you didn't obey him. You refused to obey him. Thrust him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Revealing that they didn't really understand even what they were saying when they're anti-Moses and anti-law. It was just a thing to say. It exerted power and authority. They didn't care about the purpose of the law to bring intimacy with God, to know God and to love him. They cared about it because of the power that they gave, that it gave them. Because they were, remember, they were the interpreters of the law. And so they were the gatekeepers to God. And nobody could really challenge them. But Stephen did. Stephen, who's not a preacher, he was a, he was a man that they appointed to make sure that everyone had enough to eat. And he finds himself in the Sanhedrin giving a defense and speaking with wisdom and power that they could not overcome. And his defense, as they're using and manipulating the law to turn it against God's people and to keep people, or as Jesus said, to create a stumbling block before God. His point is, you, you have the law. You're experts in the law. And you say that you care about it, but it's not having its intended effect. God's word is meant to humble us, to make us know and see our sins, that we might know that we need him and we need to have a savior. It's meant to grow our dependency on him, not to make us more self-efficient, and self-reliant. Listen, if the word of God creates in you a belief that now you know the ways of God so you are more self-sufficient and self-reliant, that is not the fruit of the Spirit. It is meant to bring us closer to Him. It is meant to grow us in dependency on the Spirit that we might know Him and love Him and out of that obey Him. And those who really, truly delight in the law of God will grow in these ways. But he's saying, you're missing the point. Like Jesus said to these same leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Listen, it's become very popular in our culture for people to manipulate the word of God in order to accuse someone of not being faithful to the word of God. There are many who seem to know the word of God, but they twist it in ways that put them at the center. And they're doing the exact same thing that the religious leaders did in that day, where they say, I'm the one who really can interpret this. If you want to know the word of God, you have to listen to me. Beware of anyone who says that. Beware of those who will use it to grow in their own status and position and power. Their hearts are not for God. They are turned back towards Egypt. Be careful of stances that seem to value God's word, but contradict the word of God. There's one thing that I could just instill in our church right now in these cultural things that are going on is to remember that whenever you hear the word truth, I want you to think Jesus. Because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the word of God. God's word that he has given us is beautiful and inerrant and trustworthy and foundational. And it all points to Jesus. If we don't see that, then we do not understand this. And so Stephen's defense is you, you say I'm anti-Moses and anti-law, but what you don't understand is you are just like your fathers. Our fathers rejected Moses and rejected the law, refused to obey him, and turned to other gods. They read the law and missed the point. But it wasn't just that he was anti-law. They said he was anti-temple the dwelling place of God. And I love what he says. I'll skip to verse 44. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So again, this situation of power is on display. The temple for them that are making these accusations it doesn't represent God. It represents their power, their position. This was the environment in which they had it. They had control. They got to determine who was in and who was out. They had God contained where he was manageable. And Stephen's response to that is really the entire, his entire defense. 
He tells them the story of Abraham. He tells them the story of Joseph. He tells them the story of Moses. He tells them in all of that. Look at all the things that were stacked against God and his people. And yet God said, I'm going to deliver you. And he does. And I'm going to restore you to the promised land. And he does. And they all get there. And, and Stephen almost like as a footnote says, and oh, by the way, that was before the temple was even built. It wasn't even there. And even David, like King David, didn't even see it done. His defense is, God doesn't need any of that. He never has. He didn't need someone who already had a son to make a nation. He didn't need Joseph to be protected in order to protect his people from famine. He didn't need Moses to be in power in Egypt to deliver his people from slavery. He still kept his promise to Abraham. He saved his people from famine. He grew them in the midst of captivity. He delivered them from Egypt. He led them into the promised land. And all of that with not a single stone that we built. This is important. Because again, today, we are tempted to fall into the trap of saying that we fear God, but we believe that he can be contained in a church building or a political platform or a systematic theology book. And then we become the gatekeepers, the ones who work hard to make sure that God has a platform. But guess what? He doesn't need our platforms. He doesn't need our buildings. He doesn't need our strategies. He doesn't need our political maneuvering. He doesn't need our Facebook posts. He doesn't need control of our Supreme Court to work miracles in this land. He does not need a particular person in political office to save his children. He does not need a mandate that his people would cry out to him in prayer in schools. One of the great threats is that we believe God needs our man-made structures and systems to carry out his work. We fear then the loss of it much like people could have with Moses. Again, imagine being there and thinking, but, but Moses, you can't lose your power and your position. Like, surely this is how God is going to deliver his people. No, it's not. And if we're not careful, we will so value the structures and the systems that we will fight anyone who would seek to tear them down, even if that one is Jesus. Jesus is the one who says he's going to tear down the temple. They find themselves fighting against Jesus. And we must be careful of this. What God wants from us is, his, is our faithfulness. He wants us to join him in the incredible work that he is doing in the world so that we might experience intimacy with him and we will find true joy and peace. And Stephen is saying, you're, you're missing all of these things. And he lands with this accusation. It's the strongest statement of the whole thing. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You knew that our fathers did this all along, and yet they killed. Like, which one of the prophets did they not persecute? Which one of the ones, which one did they not reject? And guess what? They were all pointing to the righteous one. You all think that you're better than your fathers? Guess what? You're just like them. Because the one they were pointed, they pointed to, the righteous one, you betrayed him and murdered him. If we feel too comfortable or too secure that we are so much better than the people that came before us, we are in serious trouble. It's become so popular to look back and judge people from the 1800s based on like 2022 standards. And I just think like, oh my goodness, do you realize you'd be that guy? Like this, all of us, again, it all goes back to the thing we talked about before that we all want to think that when Jesus is being like put up before the crowds and they say, do you want it, Barabbas or Jesus? Like, well, I'd be the one being like, Jesus. No. Every single one of us would be saying Barabbas. And Stephen's saying, like, your fathers did this and you're just like them. He calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and accuses them of murdering the righteous one. And turns out, they didn't love that. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. No kidding. And they ground their teeth at him. Look, we don't like it. We don't like to have the word of God pierce us like that and call things into question, things that we're like, no, 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 that's not me, that's not me. But the Holy Spirit might be saying, hey, this is partly you. We need to hear it. The religious leaders refused to hear of their error and it led them straight to destruction. They were so convinced that they were right, that they missed Jesus and it's happening. Be careful of defensiveness in the face of scripture. Beware if you get your feathers ruffled, when we hear people say things like, the United States is not God's kingdom. Beware if you get indignant when you are called upon to humbly and compassionately listen to people of color who share stories of being marginalized. That kind of heart response is conviction. It is a test of the spirit and we should meet that aggressively and say I don't know about this I don't know who's right and who's wrong about this but I know that this response of defensiveness and distraction and debating is not of God beware of those voices like, again, contrast that with how the apostles responded, as Robbie talked about last week, to the, the charge that people weren't getting enough food. The apostles didn't respond with, well, who, who do you think you are? Who are the apostles? They listened. And they responded. And not only responded, but 
gave power to the ones who were being marginalized and said, here, you, we give you our authority to do this. You do this. That means something. Listen, if we aren't careful, we will find ourselves just like our fathers, persecuting prophets and rejecting the grace and mercy and abundant life that is offered to us by the God who works all things together for good. His plans are not foiled by human hands nor served by them as if he needed anything. The God who is with us in our affliction, the God who delivers us out of slavery, the God who provides all that we need. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Paul asks, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And this is the God that Stephen experienced. This is why he had the face of an angel. So while we see that the, the religious leaders and, and heed their warnings, we look at Stephen and we say, that is the spirit of God manifested in the face of persecution. That is the beauty of the abundant life that Christ offers. And I don't, I don't have time to go in it, but I would encourage you to look. And one of the things you notice is the parallels between Stephen and Jesus. You know, they're both put on trial. They're both are levied with false accusations. They both commit their spirit at death, even the way that they die. And they both intercede on behalf of their enemies, those who persecuted them famous saying of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How do you, how do, you do that? How do, you, how do you have a heart that's so full of love and peace and joy and compassion? Only by the power of the Spirit. Stephen was bold like Jesus because the Holy Spirit gave him courage. He was wise like Jesus and spoke with wisdom like Jesus because the Holy Spirit gave him wisdom. He was powerful like Jesus because the Holy Spirit gave him power. And he was forgiving like Jesus because he had been forgiven. And he was at peace with, like Jesus because Jesus was his peace. He was enough. And this is the way. The church has followed Jesus in the way. And Stephen is the example to the early church that what Jesus was saying, that, hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It's all coming to fruition. And any thought that they would not have to go the way of Jesus is eliminated. And it's the same for us. Do not despise the path of Jesus. Do not despise the way of Jesus. But go with him and trust him and find the abundant life that he has offered. And know that he is working even when you don't see it. Know that he is working even when you don't feel it. 
Know that he is faithful even when you are losing faith and know that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he is preparing a place for you, an inheritance for you. He will deliver you. And he has done all of these things through Jesus and will bring them to completion one day. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you. We know that your promises are true. We believe, but God, help our unbelief. And God, I, I sympathize with the feelings of, of looking around and, and feeling like things are out of control, but God, help us to remember, to remember your promise to Abraham, to remember how you delivered your people from famine, to remember how you delivered them out of slavery, to remember how you were faithful even in the midst of their faithlessness, to remember that nothing can foil your plans, that you are working, you are transforming lives. And you will accomplish all that you have set out to accomplish. And we don't have to worry about that. Our role is to be faithful and to cling to Jesus and to follow you, Jesus, wherever that path would lead, but to follow you and trust you and in that find abundant life, to be able to say that we have tasted and seen that Jesus is enough. That's all I want. More than anything else, like a treasure hidden in a field. Just give me Jesus. Let me be known by him and to know him and to love him. And Holy Spirit, that you would bring that about in us. That you would stir our affections for Christ. And that you would fulfill in us all the promises of God. Amen.